0: Welcome to Show Your Scars with me, Jordan Angeli. Using my experience as a former professional athlete, I will take you inside the journey back from a devastating injury. Although we may not choose for this to happen to us, we appreciate who we've become in the process. Now, let's dive into this week's episode as we share our strength and show our scars with pride. What's up, Show Your Scars podcast? I hope you guys are doing well. I am here to bring you a new podcast, a new conversation with Zach Baker. He is a doctorate in physical therapy and a certified strength and conditioning coach out in Maryland at Rehab to Perform. And I preface this conversation with Zach as let's talk for about 30 minutes. And we ended up talking for nearly 50, so it was... Needless to say, a lot of good info from Zach about different stages of the rehab process, about how he helps athletes cope with the mental and physical side of things, and how there's some really good content right at the end about how he helps them switch off their brain in order to get their muscles firing in a different way. So I loved that part of the conversation. Make sure you stick around to hear that. Zach has a lot of great things to say, and I really think you guys will enjoy this conversation no matter if you're a physical therapist, a coach, or an athlete who's going through the rehab process. A lot of good things here from Zach. So here he is, Zach Baker. What's up, Zach? How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, how are you?
0: I am doing well, I think we're in, I'm in, week four of quarantine. So just trying to do what I can to stay sane. I'm sure that's something that you've been talking a lot to uh, some of the patients that you have.
1: We have uh, being in healthcare, care. The, uh, the public health issue going on now is definitely top of mind with everybody. And yeah, same thing. We're, we're a month, a little over a month into this now. And uh, it's definitely uh, wearing on some people. Uh, you, can, right. you can tell people are ready to get back to some normalcy, but Hopefully, we can uh, get everything under control, we'll sooner than later.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that I introed Zach a little bit, but he works at Rehab to Perform out in the Maryland area. And Zach, you and I have been interacting a little bit on social media, which has been just so great to see all the content that you guys have been putting out, especially uh, when it comes to ACL recovery and rehabilitation. And one of the things I am always so curious about when I'm talking to physical therapists is like the why. Why did you get into physical therapy? And for you, probably a little bit more like you, do you specialize in ACL? Is that something that you work a lot with? And and why was that driven to do something about that as well? Absolutely.
1: Um, I think like most PTs, uh, I got into physical therapy because of a previous injury. It tends to be a common story in our field. Um, but when I was a uh, junior in high school, I had my first ACL tear. Um, unfortunately, had my second ACL tear, again, my senior year of high school. Oh, wow. Um, so growing up, I always knew I wanted to do something in the health and wellness fields. I didn't know if I wanted to go more medical route, more strength and conditioning route. Um, my original plan was to go to college um, and then end up becoming a strength conditioning coach. So. Uh, Went to Salisbury University, was exercise science undergrad, got certified strength conditioning specialist, Um, and then along that kind of decision-making process was when the ACL injuries happened, and I got a little bit more interested in the the medical side of things. Um, And then since then, uh, ACLs, we do see a high volume of them at our clinic, Um, and just with my personal background, it's always been kind of a special interest of mine. Um, and then we developed some really good relationships with a few of the local physicians in the area. We started seeing them with more regularity at our clinic and we've, we've kind of built out a nice little niche since then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it really is something that drives you, right? When you have this injury, like at one point I thought when I was going through my rehab, I was like, maybe, maybe physical therapy is something that I want to get into, um, and my path went a different way but for you those injuries that you had your junior and your senior year what do you remember about them that was challenging that maybe led you to where you are now or maybe led you to the idea of like man i wish this was different
1: yeah it's funny when you ask that because so many different thoughts come back to mind when you say what do you remember from the injury um i remember details of the injury i remember just silly little conversations that happened. Um, I remember the first one, it was my junior year of high school uh, during football season, and I wasn't even supposed to be on the field for that. So I I played running back and linebacker. Uh, We had just scored a touchdown, and we were uh, kicking off to the other team. Yeah. And somebody's helmet was broke. So they needed somebody to run out on the field, I went out, and then that was how the injury happened, so.
0: Just running?
1: Yep. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I went out on the field to oh take, to
0: to take, uh, take his yeah. place.
1: Yep, and then it happened throughout the course of the right. return on contact. So what? Yeah, and then that just, is bizarre. Yep. Um. So then, yeah, and then the second one was senior year of high school during lacrosse season. Um, another contact related injury was scooping a ground ball, got hit from the side, and just you know foot planted in the grass, wrong place, wrong time. Um, but yeah, same I mean, knee. Same knee. Yep same name we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later i think in regards to what may have led to that but um yeah i mean i, I remember all the little things from the injury I, I remember driving home i remember you know just all the friends and family that came over that night and the following week uh just kind of that anxiety and the anticipation of you know figuring out what was going to come when they did the the imaging and the x-rays and the mris um i remember being at practice a few days later um, when my parents came out to say they got the results of the MRI. Uh, So yeah, it was tough. I mean, it was not something you want to go through. Um, But I think, you know, moving forward, I think what's a lot different now compared to previously is there's a lot other people that are going through this that have resources that aren't available like they are now. I remember when I had mine, um myself and maybe one other girl in our high school had torn their acl like in the four years i was there Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas now i mean i'm working with local high schools in the area where we're seeing five six seven eight kids in a given school year from the same high school so um i think looking back like if i would have had somebody else to kind of go through the journey with if i would have had other resources right um, just to talk through people i mean now you've got all these great outlets on social media. You've got a bunch of other ways to connect with people, um, which I feel would have been very nice to have back then.
0: And that's one of the biggest things and biggest reasons why I started this is because I would go to PT and I would be around somebody else. Like I remember this guy that I would do PT with. He was a football player at university of Colorado. And one summer, like we were always back to back in our PT sessions and we would like high five each other. And like, ask each other how we were doing or like, be like, Hey, I'm here. Do you remember this? What was it like? And there was this like bond that I had with this dude that I didn't even know. And I was like, okay, there's something here that is very unique about this injury and how it unites people. And um, you know, you say those numbers that you see right now, and that breaks my heart. And that's something that I think it breaks both of our hearts. But there is something in it that we're like, okay, well, if this is the way it is right now, let's use this to the best that we can and make these people feel like they're supported in their process.
1: Absolutely. And that's, I mean, the one silver lining of the injuries, it's obviously a long rehab process, but it gives you that opportunity to build rapport with your, with your rehab specialist, with your medical staff. Like you said, other people going through the process as well. And I think mm-hmm. uh, just using that time to your advantage and, and really optimizing um, the whole process in regards to getting appropriate information, setting appropriate goals, kind of always building one week after another is very, very important.
0: Right. For you, one of the things that you just mentioned when the things that you remember about your injury is just that anxiety of prepping for surgery or prepping for a big change in your life. And that's probably something you at Rehab to Perform do a lot, Zach, when you're talking to your athletes is one, you probably try to get them there before surgery and you're shaking your head cuz that's correct right you if you can get some prehab in it's always beneficial how do you prepare them for surgery on that mental and even physical side like what would you recommend for people before they go into surgery saying like these are some good things to know
1: absolutely and i think typically what happens with us is we either get people that are told that they need rehab prior to surgery by their surgeon which is great when that happens um, or you get the people that are calling and they say, "Hey, I'm getting surgery in two weeks. I want to schedule an appointment for after the surgery," and that's usually when we bridge that gap of you know letting them know what we have to offer uh, prior to the surgery and how that can help streamline the process. But I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. There's really two different things that you need to pay attention to, and it's you're trying to develop them physically and prepare them for the surgery from a physical standpoint. And then also from a mental and psychological standpoint, and the physical part's easy. It's easy for them to understand. It's easy for them to rationalize. You want to go into the surgery minimally symptomatic. You don't want to have a lot of swelling. You want to have as much range of motion, as much strength as possible. And that's what we cover a lot of times is just developing a program for them to utilize leading up to the surgery. And I always tell them, walk into the surgery feeling like you don't need it. You should be able to walk confidently. You should have good range of motion. You'd have good strength. Other than sprinting, cutting, pivoting, doing the high-level stuff, you should feel very confident going into it. Um, But the even more important part that I've found is just making sure everybody's on the same page going into the surgery in regards to what's going to happen and what are our expectations Mm -hmm. immediately following surgery, but then what's that long-term plan in regards to, getting back out on the field, returning to sport, or just returning to life in general. Um, and I think the more prepared people are going into the surgery, you don't have that awkward period afterwards where you have the surgery and you don't follow up with your physician for a week or you don't start PT for a few days and you're, j- you're just kind of waiting and you're waiting right. with unknown. So um, one thing that we try to do is I always just poke and pry and say, you know, what, what have you been told by your surgeon? What did they say or expectations? Did they what's their thought process on getting back to playing your respective sport? Did they give you any timelines? Or we're in a day and age where people have a lot of information readily available. They usually come in saying, Hey, this is what I found online. Mm-hmm. I read so-and-so, went back at this time frame. My friend did this two years ago, right? And this is how it played out. So Honestly, a lot of the times that pre-surgery rehab, it's almost more conversational than anything. And just making sure that the athlete, any family members, especially if they're a youth athlete, um, and the medical staff, that we're all on the same page and we're not giving any mixed messages.
0: Communication is one of the biggest forms of growth, I feel like, in the ACL rehab process, is that you are forced to to communicate better and you have to communicate with so many different people it's your family it's your support system it's your pt your doctor your coach your teammates like in learning how to talk to each of those groups but also um bring them in into like helping you through the journey and i think that's really important what you were talking about is kind of laying it out for people what to expect and One of the things that I see a lot is people are like, oh my gosh, this hurts really bad. I just had surgery. And I think because ACL injuries are so common, I think people don't really understand how painful it can be after you have the surgery. It's a big surgery and your bones are getting drilled through and you are a lot of the times taking a piece of living tissue out of a part of your body and putting it somewhere else and it hurts and um i think even setting those expectations for people sometimes they don't even know that much yeah and that's
1: that's something too where i think we as a as a society and as a medical community um really as an athletic community we almost get numb to the idea of acl surgeries at this point it, what used to be a you know a catastrophic career-ending injury We've now gotten so efficient with the diagnostics, with the surgical interventions and the rehab process mm-hmm. um, that people have become almost comfortable with them. And when you have that ACL, uh, you almost have that, you know, you don't have the shock and all that you had previously. It's like, oh, you had your ACL. You'll be fine. We'll, we'll see you in a few months back out in the field. Um, or you get the people, like you said, that they just underestimate the significance of the surgery. And that's something that I try to prep them for is you had a major orthopedic procedure done it's not going to feel great in that first few weeks after mm-hmm. and that's okay and just letting them know that it's okay to feel some discomfort make us aware of what you're feeling so we can guide you through that process but this isn't going to be something that's going to be pain-free and it's not something that we need to medicate ourselves to a level where we're just pain-free 24 hours a day either right to get things as well
0: it's really important. So many good things that you said there. And one of the things that sticks out to me and, um, is that when we're talking about the overall rehabilitation for ACL, there are some commonalities, right? But I think you also said in there, like, uh, it's time to like challenge the status quo and say, you know, ACL rehab is not what it used to be. And we've developed it into being so much more individualized. And I think that's one of the things you guys do at rehab to perform. So talk, talk me through those two things. One is like, as a physical therapist, what are the commonalities that you see, like maybe sticky points in the process and how do you help people through those points?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think the biggest thing to do is just to kind of define what the process really is. And I always tell people, you can look at ACL rehab uh, sequentially from a chronological standpoint, and then also from a functional standpoint. And there are certain things that we just cannot change. We can't change healing timelines. We can't change certain guardrails within the protocol. Mm-hmm. But how we operate within those rules can be vastly different from one clinician and one facility to another. Um, and what I always tell my patients and what I tell um, students as well when I have them is I love post-op rehab and especially ACL rehab. And I look at it as Tell me what the rules of the game are, meaning what's the protocol, what are we allowed to do, and then we're going to figure out how to play this game better than every single other person. Oh, I love that. And really with that, you kind of break it down into that that first month, and when you look at the whole rehab process, it's a continuum. See, it's never where you're in one phase, and then you progress to the next phase, and you forget about everything else, and you start new stuff you're always blending different areas of the rehab together, but you have a main focus throughout each month and throughout each phase. So, Well,
0: what's important about that too is is building off of the last phase is it brings the athlete confidence to do what you're asking them to do next. So if you're blending those two, they've already done that. And so you're like, okay, you've done that. We're building off of this. And you start to like sneak them in to these next things where then they are working off of that confidence. Like I can do this.
1: Yeah, and that's what we always tell people month one, get rid of swelling, get rid of symptoms, normalize range of motion, normalize walking. So like by the end of month one, we wanna pass the eye test. We wanna be doing normal daily activities. Um, Month two is when we start getting into that body weight competency, meaning I wanna start being able to do everything on my surgical leg just as well as I can on my non-surgical leg in Mm -hmm. regards to just daily movement patterns squatting, stepping, lunging, hinging, your big gross movement patterns. And like you said, that really sets the table for the next month where you start adding more resistance, external load, whether it's through free weights, whether it's through machines, whether it's through bands. Um, Typically around month three is when you start reintroducing running. And I think you mentioned sticking points. One often overlooked area is we go from very range of motion, Symptom management, uh, strength-based rehab, and then we ask people to run. And we never really bridge that gap. So Hmm. we usually take like the month prior to running in that like nine to 12 week phase post op. And that's where we start introducing gradual ramping up of impact. So we're doing think about getting like an agility ladder out, and we're not going through like a strength conditioning session, but you're working on cadence, you're working in getting a little bit of a bounce in your step, you're working on. Uh, progressing from just like a walking to more of a uh, marching, more of a skipping motion. You're adding in um, just gradual impact, gradual force production. And really the main thing you're doing is you're increasing confidence with those tasks. So when they go to running, they've done things that are just as not just as challenging, but equally as challenging from a skill standpoint and from an impact standpoint. Mm-hmm. So that the only new thing they're doing it's just the task of running. Putting it
0: together. Exactly. One of the things I'm sure you hear a lot is when can I run? When can I run? When can I run? Like over and over again. That's like, it, like, I don't know. I can't tell you how many DMs I get of people just like, I'm this, can I run? And I'm like, I, I can't tell you that. I'm not your PT. But that's a really good point is like running is it has to be at the right time and that time can be different for every single athlete that you see, you know, it could be right at the three months because they've progressed through the other things, the way that they, you know, that you feel like they're ready for that. But some people, it could be later than that. And I think telling and teaching people that timelines and like this overall, how we think things are going to go, like it doesn't always go that way, but that's okay. Like, how do you, how do you help people through that aspect? Because as athletes, we want to think like, if we do this, then this happens. And then if we do that, then this happens. But this is the ACL of rehab, right? It's up and down. It's steady. It's flat. It goes up. There's so many wild cards that can be thrown into it that it's hard to manage that. Like, okay, well, this isn't the timeline that you gave me, though.
1: Yeah. And it's, I always say, like, it should, it should always progress in a nice, positive, linear progression. But it is going to ebb and flow a yeah. little bit. That's we, better,
0: admin flow, yeah.
1: Um, and with that, really, there's a, you can look at it as there's timeline oriented uh, benchmarks that we hit, but then also functional benchmarks as well. So there's gonna be a time when you are medically allowed to run, and then there's gonna be a time when it's appropriate for you to start running. Mm. So we just tell people, you know, there's certain minimum thresholds, meaning you are not allowed to run prior to this date, but once we hit that date, we have the ability to be cleared to run, assuming we're able and competent enough to run from a functional standpoint. Right. And that's where we build in just a sequential battery of tests with them from really day one to the time that they're discharged. And that acts as nice little benchmarks along the way where they're getting constant feedback on a week by week and month by month um, progression to see if they're hitting these different landmarks and milestones that they need to so that when their protocol clears them to be able to do that next functional task, they know if they're progressing in that direction or not. And it helps from a programming standpoint as well because like you said, you're gonna get people that fly through certain phases and that struggle with others. And if you're not constantly reassessing and evaluating where you're at, you may end up missing some critical weeks and where you could have tweaked their program to Mm. supplement some more strength training or balance training or proprioception. And then that way, you know, if you do realize that they are maybe a couple of days behind, you're not even behind, but just maybe they're nervous or apprehensive with certain tasks, you can program that in a little bit more. So they're still hitting milestones um, with when, you know, quote unquote, they should be. And then mentally, they're still staying on track as well.
0: Yeah, but those are all really good points. And it leads me to this thought of when you're working with athletes, especially, um, you know, I think of certain times in my rehab that were painful right and uh learning uh getting range of motion back Ooh, that is a, a distinct pain that i think we all can still feel no matter where we're at um how many years it's been since our rehab uh, so range of motion is one of them um like single leg squatting i feel pain in my joint and like this certain like learning to do that. And I think those are two distinct pains. And yeah. like one of the pain, and, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is like, how do you help people distinguish between, okay, this pain is actually beneficial pain and I it, it's going to hurt, but you have to get through it versus like, okay, well, let's talk about that because we might not be ready for that yet.
1: Yep. And I always tell people whenever they're going through things, give me feedback. Let me know how you're feeling. Let me know what you're feeling because then you can actively triage on the spot. And I think the biggest thing is it's usually the quality of pain, meaning are they describing it as aching or pressure or sharp or um, instability or kind of buckling? Um, That quality of pain coupled with the location of where they say they're feeling it, that's where clinical judgment comes in and it lets you feel like, or it lets you um, rationalize, is that something that they should be feeling? Is it something that's abnormal? And a lot of times it, what we're looking at from a clinical standpoint is we should have a very good indication of what they should feeling based off the amount of effort or force that's required for that task and the position that they're in. And it's very easy to manipulate those variables, meaning when I'm doing an exercise with somebody, so say a single leg squat, mm-hmm. things that you can look at, are you just moving your body weight or do you have your body weight plus a kettlebell or a dumbbell or some other resistance? How much has that changed since the previous exercise that we did that prepped us for this? And if you were pain-free before and now you're having discomfort, then we know it most likely has something to do with this increased resistance or maybe this increased range of motion we went through. And other things that we look at are stance progressions as well. So a single leg squats obviously much more challenging than a regular two-legged squat. So... Some people will struggle with making that transition from one to the other. So common things you may see, maybe we go from a regular squat to a split squat or a staggered stance squat and Mm -hmm. then a single leg squat. Um, So I think two common things you look at, was there a significant change in programming with either the stance or position they're in, or are you asking them to do anything out of the ordinary with regards to the range of motion and the amount of resistance they're encountering? Um, And take that a step further when you get to running, um, are we increasing our, our volume? Are we increasing our tempo, our pace mm-hmm. from linear to nonlinear running? Um, and I think really what, I, what you could summarize it as is from a programming standpoint, the more variables you can control and just gradually modify, it makes it very easy as a clinician to rationalize to the patient, hey, last time we did this, now we're attempting to do this. It's just a matter of your knee needing to be exposed to that. As long as it's not changing the way you're performing the activity, as long as the pain's not increasing with each rep, and as long as it's tolerable, it's okay to work through that. And I anticipate it's going to get more comfortable with more exposure. So.
0: What's so cool about that, I think Zach is like, you're telling us if I'm, if I'm somebody going through PT right now, and I'm listening to this, I'm actually learning so much about what it is like to be a physical therapist and how many things you guys are evaluating every single exercise that you give, right? Like there are so many variables and so many things that you're addressing and looking out for as, as you progress through this process. And I think that's really something that I was always intrigued about. And I know like, if I, if you went and asked my PTs, everything we did, I was like, why are we doing this? What does this mean? I feel this, like I was always telling them like, talk, 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 talk. Because I wanted them to understand what it was like to be in my body and what I was feeling because I knew if the more that they knew what I was feeling, the better they could help me. And I think some people are afraid to have that communication. Like, Oh, if if I tell Zach that this hurts, maybe I won't be able to do that next, but it's breaking down that wall of like vulnerability. Right. And saying like, I need to tell him because he's here to help me and in order to help me, he has to know.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's something that, athletes inherently are typically very aware of their body and they're very in tune. And most athletes are very intrigued and interested with how do I make my body perform better as well? So a lot of the time, and you have some athletes that, that don't want information, but from my right. experience, a lot of them, they want more information and they want to know the why and the how, and especially early on in the process when the exercise are, they're a little bit tedious. They're a little bit repetitive. Um, they're much more, uh, simplistic than your typical strength and conditioning sessions. It can be very difficult to stay engaged as an athlete when you're just doing quad sets and straight leg raises and other activities that don't seem that challenging. So I usually try to fill that dead time with conversation. Hey, we're doing this quad set because if you can show me that you can do this confidently and comfortably, it's going to allow us to get off the table and start walking. And I know you don't want to be on crutches for the next two weeks. So show me you can do this. Once you show me that you can do that comfortably and confidently, then we get to do something a little bit more exciting. Um, and I think just kind of showing them the light at the end of the tunnel, what the next opportunity is, um, gives them a little bit more motivation. And it's also a little challenge for them, too. You tell somebody that they can't do something or that they need to do something in order to do the next thing, especially from a somebody who's competitive, you're going to get typically pretty consistently good results with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about, because I feel like this is all really good stuff at the pre-surgery, um, prepping for surgery, po- like mm-hmm. post-surgery up into that third mark, third month, fourth month mark, but you guys are called rehab to perform, and that has a very distinct feeling to it. So maybe just why is it called that, and what is your guys' uh, emphasis on that return to performance kind of stage of rehab?
1: Absolutely. And to kind of piggyback off where we left off, we talked about like that months one through three, uh-huh. when you get to three months and beyond is I think when ACL rehab really starts to resonate with the athlete and it really starts to look more fun because that's when they're, they're getting back into running, they're getting back into reintroduction of jumping and landing, um, doing some multi-directional change of direction work. And then as they increase their ability to do that safely, comfortable, uh, comfortably and competently, that's when you start getting into more of your sport specific tasks and eventually that return to sport process. Mm-hmm. Right, um, Rehab to Perform, the, the name was really built uh, because we thought that there was almost a definitive like dichotomy between rehab and performance training. And in reality, there's a lot of rehab specialists and physical therapists that can function well in a performance standpoint. And there's a lot of strength and conditioning coaches that are also very knowledgeable in regards to what injuries look like, how to help manage them as they get out of that acute post-op phase.
0: And, and yeah, oh, go ahead.
1: And I was going to say, what what we really try to do is make sure that we're not taking people from that acute rehab, table-oriented ACL exercises And then we're just asking them to go to the complete other end of the spectrum. How do we blend that gap Mm. in the clinic? And then how do we blend that gap from an interdisciplinary standpoint so that we can work with their personal trainer or their strength and conditioning coach or their athletic training staff? And how do we create a community of people for this athlete so they're not dependent on any one person? And really, when you get somebody who can start doing other things with their team from a strength conditioning standpoint, you can start implementing them back into somewhat of a a more regular routine as early as possible it it does wonders for them from a psychological standpoint
0: how do you do that because that's one of the most difficult things I've found in talking to people is like my PT says this but my athletic trainer doesn't want me doing that or you know that that's a very difficult um, bridge to cross to mend to build together but it is so Huge. If you can do that and you have everybody on the same page saying like, you know, at the end of the day, I think everybody that are in this group of people who are helping athletes try to get better, that be the physical therapists, the strength and conditioning people, uh, athletic trainers, coaches, everybody wants that athlete to get better. But sometimes making that all come together in a way that is beneficial for the athlete is very difficult. So what are some ways that you guys go about that in order to build that communication and trust?
1: I think a lot of that's going to be unique to whatever setting you're in. So if you're fortunate enough to be in in a collegiate setting, you're typically going to have a lot of continuity between team physician, athletic training staff, strength conditioning staff. And there's usually very defined roles, responsibilities, and some sort of decision-making process that they all are incorporated in. Um, In our field, in private practice, outpatient orthopedics, it's a little bit different. Um, One thing that we really tried to do when we opened up in the area was introduce ourselves to everybody in the health and fitness world, meet all the physicians, meet all the surgeons, and really just open our doors in regards to this is our philosophy, this is how we do things, this is what we provide for patients, tell us what you do, what's your specialty, what's your area of expertise, and how can we work together so that when we get patients who for a variety of different reasons, maybe their insurance runs out and they can't continue with PT, but they still need to work with someone. Mm-hmm. Let me put you in the direction to the best strength conditioning um, facility that's gonna help out with that. Um, or say that you have somebody that, maybe they're a collegiate athlete who's in from out of town and they're getting information from their school training staff. And now they're gonna be home with us for winter break for two months and we gotta figure out, do we just follow what the script says? Do we progress as we see fit? Um, And I think it really comes down to just you got to make connections. You have to take the extra time and effort to get involved and communicate with everybody who is playing a role in the rehab. Um, And I think the more they learn about what you have to offer as a PT and what your kind of knowledge base, what your skill set is, and really what your comfort level is, a lot of those may be apprehensions. with letting you progress or with letting you take a little bit more autonomy with that. They they seem to be lifted when more people are, uh, have a better understanding of what that process looks like.
0: Yeah. And I also, I challenge a lot of the times the athletes to initiate those conversations because as the athlete, you can feel when it doesn't feel right between you know, your PT at one place and your PT at the other. Cause I did that. I did summer break at home with my PT in one place and my PT there. And, um, you can feel that and it's, it's tr- like draining. Right. And the last thing you want in your rehab is another factor that is making you stress out more. So I think it is, you know, not, not every athlete is at the point where they can vouch for themselves and feel empowered and feel, uh, Okay, to have those conversations. But as I said, I think, and you've been through it too. So, you know, like you learned so much about yourself in this rehab, things that you wouldn't even think you were going to learn. And one of those things is how, you know, how do I make this work for me? How do I stick up for myself and say, okay, you know, I know you Zach are what trying to help me and I'm working with you right now, but I need to bring in my PT from school and make sure we all feel good and comfortable so I can feel comfortable about it too. And even having that conversation can be really difficult for athletes, but how that changes you and in the ability to have like, um, I don't know, just have conversations that aren't easy, I think is really beneficial.
1: And I think as a professional on our end, the biggest thing is we need to just check our ego at the door and appreciate that we're not the only people involved in the process. There's gonna be others that are gonna have their hand in their decision in the process. Um, And personally, I'm not naive enough to think that what we do is the best and that there's not other people out there that can't contribute very meaningful pieces to the puzzle as well. So I think professionally, it's just a matter of accepting help and looking for help from others. And then I think in order to advocate for the patient, one thing that I'll, that I'm very open to is um, having them sign a consent form for me to reach out to their athletic trainer or to their Mm -hmm. staff. And I'll usually, I'll do a group email or I'll do a group text message and I'll say, Hey, I've got Ashley home from college break right now. She's been telling me about all the great things you guys have been working on. This is what we saw today. This is what I would like to do with her. Would you mind giving me a call and just filling me in on how you think we, we get started? Totally.
0: I think that's awesome.
1: And I think that way, one, you're doing it in front of the patient. So either through phone call, email, or text message, they're seeing the conversation unfold. And I think a lot of that takes away some of the apprehension as well. Um, And I think just, it, it all comes down to, you have to let them know that you have their best interest in mind as well. And whether they're seeing myself, whether they're working with another PT or with another medical or strength conditioning professional, at the end of the day it all comes down to is this athlete going to recover to their best of their ability are they going to have a good time and enjoy doing it and are we going to be able to have a successful outcome right Um, you can just play a piece in that uh if you can play a role in that process whether how small or how large it is then i think you've done your part
0: that's great advice and i love that and uh I think it's so beneficial for the athletes and just us as people, right? To to have, to be able to work together, that's what we love to do. I think collaborate and um, you open up the doors when you have those types of conversations. I wanna get back to, before I let you go here in a few minutes, that idea of return to performance. And one of the things that I think comes up a lot with athletes is like, there's fear in returning to perform because there's fear of re-injury and how do you help them through those um, that point in their, their rehab where, okay, I know I'm ready to do this, but man, I'm scared. Yeah,
1: uh, it's education. And I think you educate them on what are the risk factors associated with returning to play? What are good indicators that show that you're in a good position to return to play? And what are indicators that show that you may need a little bit more time or a little bit more work in certain areas? Um, and you look at that from a chronological standpoint, you look at it from a physical standpoint and from a mental standpoint. So um, from a chronological standpoint, that's part of that comes down to just what the surgeon feels after they did the surgery, what is their best indication of, is this a nine month process? Is it a 12 month process? Uh, what's their comfort level with the athlete returning with certain timeframes? from a physical standpoint, that's where it comes down to your testing. And unfortunately, there's no specific gold standard test that shows if you pass this test, you're gonna go back and not get injured or have a lower likelihood. But what I always tell people is we can do a battery of tests and each test is gonna tell us a little bit something about you individually as an athlete. And not any one of them is going to put you in a, six, in a position for success or failure but it's going to show us trends and it's going to show us patterns. And ideally we have more of those tests coming back favorable as opposed to unfavorable. Um, and examples of those tests are, you know, you're looking at muscle strength. So you're looking at range of motion, you're looking at muscle size, girth measurements of the muscle. We're doing balance testing. We're doing uh, conditioning tests. What's my aerobic and anaerobic abilities. We're taking you through agility tests. We're taking you through power tests. Um, And all of those things, they're really painting a picture of the sport that you need to go back to. And it's very easy to conceptualize for somebody when you can say, hey, I know you're nine months out of surgery, but guess what? Your range of motion looks good. Your strength looks really good. But you used to be able to run a six minute mile and you just ran a seven and a half minute mile. Do you really think you're in a position to go back onto the field? Um, So I think just having objective data that paints a very holistic picture for them allows you to validate what your decisions are. Um, And then from a mental standpoint, uh, there's a couple good tests that are out there that you can give the athlete. One that we use is the uh, ACL RSI or the the readiness uh, return to sport index. Um, And that's something that we monitor from day one, three months, six months, nine months, all the way back to when they return to sport. And I think that's an ongoing conversation that you have with the athlete. Ideally, you've covered that early on in the process. And you're sprinkling in some of their apprehensions throughout the whole rehab, as opposed to waiting to the end. And some of its mechanism of injury, if I had a a plant cut pivot mechanism of injury, that's going to be something that I want to be mindful of that when we're reintroducing that early on. And we're building that confidence and we're crossing that bridge four, five, six months out, as opposed to the first time they go back out onto a practice field.
0: It's so true, right, is working in Working through those things in a controlled environment at a physical therapy clinic the, that where, you know, that mechanism of injury can really help build confidence. And what I'm getting from what you're saying there is like, if we can build confidence through this data or through these tests that we're running, then the athlete's going to know like, okay, I, I should be confident because I've done all the things that I can do. And I'm at a place where uh, my body is ready for this.
1: Yep. And I I go through a checklist with athletes. So when we're making that return to sport decision making, it all comes down to from a timeline standpoint, is it logical for us to go back at this time frame? And that's where every situation is going to be different. You know, if you're a senior in college and it's your final collegiate season and the season starts and you're only going to be eight months out. If we know that from early on that 's a conversation we have with the surgeon and the team medical staff, and we say, "Hey, are, are we going to try to accelerate this and make this push to be ready when the season starts, um, or are you a high school freshman that has a very promising collegiate career and you just tore your ACL and you 're fifteen years old that's not going to be somebody that there's a whole lot of urgency to get them back at ten months versus twelve months, whereas you're going to want to make sure that you're maybe a little bit more conservative so mm-hmm. I always look at, does it it make sense from a timeline standpoint? Have we passed all of our standard orthopedic tests? Meaning, do I have any swelling? Is my range of motion back to normal? When we do circumference measurements, does my affected leg look like my unaffected leg? All of your kind of PT rehab oriented tests. After that, from a fitness standpoint, am I performing at a level consistent with my pre-injury state? meaning when i do all my strength conditioning tests am i just as strong as just as in shape as i was prior to the injury and then the last piece of the puzzle is have i gradually been re-exposed to all of the demands of the sport Mm -hmm. meaning if i'm going to go play a soccer game have i gone through all of the different things in a logical sequence and i've shown that i can tolerate the demands of a soccer game physically um, and also mechanically and mentally and i think that's where A big piece that gets lost in translation is it's one thing to go to PT or work out two or three times a week. It's another thing to have to wake up and go to a two or three hour practice six days a week um, and not having that luxury of having two or three days in between to rest and recover. So Mm -hmm. um, you know, timeline, does it make sense to go back? Are we passing orthopedic tests? Do we look from a strength and conditioning standpoint like our previous self and consistent with what our peers look like? Um, you don't want to go back out on the field and be the slowest one out there, be the weakest one all out right. there. Um, and then have you gone through all the paces of what your activity is and do you feel comfortable and confident doing that? And if you can do that as a professional and as an individual, if you do, or if you're unfortunate enough to have another injury, you can at least look back at the injury and say, there's nothing else that we could have done. And I'm just one of those people that has you know, bad luck or wrong place, wrong time, wow. but if you have an athlete that does have a re injury and you didn't check off all those boxes, that's when, as a medical community or as an individual, that's when you need to step back and reevaluate and say, you know, what did we miss? Or was there a reason of why they were out there that was just special to their circumstance and they were aware of the risk and they were aware of what the potential
0: consequences were? Totally. So much good stuff in this, Zach. I I have a few like random quick questions to ask yeah, before we, we wrap up. Um, is there a graph choice that you recommend for athletes or are you in the uh, wheelhouse of like, Hey, there's, there's a right one maybe for you in your given situation. I,
1: I think what you just said hit, hits the nail on the head. I've never, and we've probably rehabbed in somewhere in like the three to 400 range of ACLs over the last four to five years at our clinic. I've never had a patient come in where I've looked at the script and said, oh man, they had a quad tendon graft or oh, they had a hamstring or a cadaver graft. Um, So I'm never gun shy about working with any specific graft. When patients ask me pre-surgery if I have any recommendations, I always tell them that my outcomes and our outcomes really clinically have never been skewed by the type of graft you're mindful throughout the process of how exercise selection and progression may vary slightly different in different phases. Uh, but in regards to graph selection, just have a conversation with your surgeon, um, ask them what their input is, um, and they're gonna know what's, what's best for your individual situation.
0: What is the advice that maybe you wish you got or the advice that you like to give your athletes now before they go into an ACL rehab?
1: Oh, uh, gosh. If I had advice that I wish I would have got, I would say just uh, ability to access resources and just ways for support, either from a community standpoint um, or just an informational standpoint. I remember, luckily I did have an athletic trainer. She was able to scrounge up like a random protocol that she had found from a college that she used to work at. And even just that one little document, just seeing it laid out on a piece of paper across nine to 12 months, what a general progression was gonna look like was it was very um, comforting and comforting for me exactly Um, and I would say just people getting ready to go through surgery you're not the only one that's going through the surgery so you've got more than enough support if you're willing to seek it out Um, don't be shy about whatever your apprehensions or your concerns are um, and just keep your head up it's a long journey but it's one that it's a very predictable journey if you allow it to be predictable and there's a lot of people that are out there that are willing to help you uh, if you open up for the help
0: you probably shouldn't cho- choose a favorite part in ACL rehab, but when you when you have a patient who gets to a certain point, like what is the point where you just like get so excited to uh, do certain exercises with your patients?
1: Yeah, I would say I have two different areas for that. So one is in the beginning where it's very protocol driven. Um, and I like that because it's something where you really set the tone for the whole rehab. And that's where I think what separates um, clinicians that are enjoyable to work with between just showing up and going through the motions at PT is how can we make a very trivial exercise, get the most bang for its buck or the most entertaining? Meaning, you know, do I want to do a quad set to work on terminal knee extension or would I rather hold a front plank for 30 seconds and get more of a, like a total body workout with it? So how can we sprinkle in uh, more total body reconditioning making you feel like an athlete again early on in the process um, is something that I find a lot of uh, fun doing. And then I think when the real fun begins is when you get into that three to four month mark and you get out of the realm of the rehab where you're very, very restricted by medical guidelines and you still have obvious things that you cannot do or you cannot rush, but you get to that point of rehab where I can just say to them, show me you can do this. And then we get to do something else show me you can do this activity safely. And then we get to do the next one. And that's really where it just comes into uh, the the availability of exercises that you can do becomes very, very, very big. Um, And they tend to be the ones that athletes enjoy doing because they start to resemble a lot of what their sport looks like.
0: I love that. And I like that you I I had never thought about that front plank and the quad set before. That's a good
1: it's, that's one of the biggest things we'll do early on when people. We try to get them moving as quickly as possible. And if somebody's going to be doing very basic lower body stuff, so say we're doing you know quad sets, straight leg raises, we're going to superset with that something upper body. So we're going yeah. to we're going to put you on the edge of the table and we're going to do push-ups. We're going to go over to TRX and we're going to do rows. And mm-hmm. while you're doing those pushups and rows, we may cue you to do things subtly with that injured knee so that you get double benefit from the total body exercise, but also something very specific to the knee as well. And it makes it a lot more fun. Um, there's a just a lot of good research out there in regards to um, just mental health and getting people up and moving and physically active earlier on in the rehab as well.
0: And one of the things that I think patients might not understand is like when you're asked to do a couple things at once, you're cueing your brain in a different way that's allowing you to uh, rehab your brain too and start to make those connections again that maybe have been lost when you're going through.
1: Absolutely. Dual tasking. Yeah. How can you make something very trivial? How do you add just another layer to it? And a term that I had heard used by some others in the uh, medical community, it's called hidden curriculum. What can you do as a clinician to get them to accomplish several tasks that they have no clue that they're even doing hmm. meaning i've had certain ish, certain uh, patients who i'll try to do a short arc quad with them or i'll try to do a quad set and for whatever reason they just can't get that muscle memory to go i'll say hey get into a push-up position and now magically they can lock their knee out so sometimes just taking them out of context and asking them to do something that they don't even perceive as being a knee exercise removing them from the context where they're thinking about some other part of their body, and they can still accomplish really the underlying goal of what you're trying to achieve as a
0: clinician. That's good, Zach. Okay, I got two more for you. The last one of this series is we ask a lot of people, you know, as an athlete, what it's like to get back to playing again of whatever sport it was. But for a PT, what's it like for you to see your athletes back doing what they love to do?
1: it's awesome it's uh it's one of our favorite things here in the clinic is being able to go out to the local high schools local colleges um we have very good relationships with the athletes we tend to form very strong relationships with their family members so um it's yeah i vividly remember sitting in stands with my daughters watching some of our former patients play and just hearing you know my little girls cheer for patients while they're out there playing and watching them score goals and make baskets um and just seeing, you know, the excitement of their parents and everybody else watching them go through that process is, I think, one of the most rewarding things to go through.
0: Yeah, it makes me smile really big because I know that just the bond you you develop with your physical therapist is something that is pretty unique and really special. And, you know, I still talk to my PTs to this day and I haven't been injured in 10 years. And, yeah. um for you, the last question we ask, and you've probably got a pretty good scar because what, <laughs> how is, how's your scar from your ACL?
1: It is, uh, they used the same one uh, for both of the surgeries, so they reopened it. I, I was uh, you know, the, the tough guy that wanted a really cool scar. Yeah. Um, so I was the person that after the first surgery, I didn't put anything on it. I didn't do any of the cool mm. you know, scar care. So I got the really nice raised scar early mm. on. Um, and then they started saying, Zach, quit being an idiot and just take care of your scar. You're yeah. not cool for doing that. Right. Um, and then it kind of flattened out after the, uh, after the second one. See, I got, I got the long one. From the long
0: the, one. That's what I'm saying. I was thinking you probably have a, a little bit one. longer of one. Um, yeah. so the, po- the podcast is called show your scars. And yeah. I always ask everybody, what do your scars mean to you?
1: Oh, it is, uh, it's kind of a loaded question, but I would say the one thing that it did for me, I was, uh. Always a multi-sport athlete growing up, going through high school. I, you know, I was never, you know, an elite athlete that was going to play professionally, but had a very promising high school career and was, you know, looking at some smaller Division One schools for basketball and football and missing my junior and senior year that obviously didn't work out. Um, so I think really looking back on that as somebody who identified so much as an athlete and, you know, my my mom was a three-sport athlete in college at a Division One school. My wife was a collegiate lacrosse player. My brother played college lacrosse. Um, my dad was a three-sport athlete in high school. It's kind of been our family identity. And what, when that gets taken from you, um, especially when you're kind of in what you, know, you feel is the, the peak of your time, it's tough to adjust to that. So I think uh, going through the injury and just seeing that scar, the one positive it is it put me down a career path that I really love doing and I really enjoy doing. Um, And I think it's just one of those things where you make the most out of every situation. And just remember, there's always going to be people that are going through similar things that you have. And um, how can you use your experiences to help benefit others?
0: It's a great answer, Zach. And before I let you go, let everybody know how they can connect with you and what you've got going on right now, because I know you're using this time to help uh, get in touch with athletes in a different way as well.
1: Absolutely. So it's a a pretty exciting time. Uh, Clinically, my role here is changing a little bit. So I will still be uh, a PT in treating patients. But one thing that we are doing at Rehab to Perform is we're actually developing a sports residency program where we'll be taking um, PTs who have already become licensed and they're sitting for their sports clinical specialist. Uh, So I'll be the program director for that. We're hoping to launch that this summer. Um, and then the other big push that we're making um, is we just opened up R2P Academy, which is uh, informational uh, continuing education and just really a lot of content geared towards uh, rehabilitation and um, really performance training. And how do you blend those together? So uh, those are kind of the big things. Um, I'm on Instagram at ZB Baker 30 um, and also at R2P Academy. And I try to stay pretty regular with that in regards to um, just showing things from a clinical standpoint, from the professional side, um, things that are a little bit more uh, humanized from a patient side as well. um, And really just try to share the journeys of some of my patients that uh, have opened up their ability to do so.
0: What a great chat, Zach. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for
0: having me on. I have shared everything about Zach, how you can get in contact with him in the show notes. So make sure you follow him on Instagram and check out what he's doing with Rehab to Perform. I hope you guys liked this conversation. And if you could do me a favor and go to wherever you listen to podcasts, rate and review, leave us a little bit of a review. It really helps not only get us heard by other people, but seen and get into the ears of people who might need it the most. And if it's one thing we know at show your scars, it's that showing your scars and telling your story can really not only help you, but it can help others. So let's do that through this rate and review It would be really, really mean a lot to me. So that's it for me. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Go out there and show your scars with pride.